Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of our Deep Dive podcast series, where we unravel the intricate fabrics of scientific research. I'm Tom. And I'm Jen. Today, we've got a fascinating paper to dissect. It's all about how learning and cognitive restructuring, which are key components in treating low mood or depression, affect the way we make attributions. In simple terms, how we link causes to events in our lives. Absolutely, Jen. The paper we're exploring is titled, Learning Training Boosts Causal Attribution Tendencies Similarly to Brief Cognitive Restructuring, Depending on Individual Differences in Learning Rate. It's authored by Agnes Norbury and colleagues from the prestigious University College London and other institutions. Before we leap into the nitty-gritty details, let's set the stage. Cognitive therapy is a sort of gold standard treatment for low mood, helping patients to identify and challenge their negative beliefs. These beliefs often come in the form of these automatic, distorted thoughts that color our interpretations of everyday events. Right, Jen. And these interpretations can turn into a kind of vicious cycle where negative beliefs about oneself lead to negative explanations for why things happen, which then reinforce the original negative beliefs. Now the million dollar question is, do these therapeutic strategies actually work by changing these attribution styles and thus improving mood? Well, this paper aims to provide some answers. The team hypothesizes that by either engaging in a learning task specifically designed to improve attribution styles or through a brief stint in cognitive restructuring, one's tendency to make unhelpful attributions should diminish. This, listeners, is where we see a twinkle of hope that these methods could indeed facilitate change in the symptoms of low mood. But here's the catch. The effects of these interventions seem to vary depending on how well individual participants can learn during the tasks. This paints a complex picture where personal differences in learning impact the effectiveness of these therapeutic components. Now, strap in because we're diving into the deep end. We'll be covering objectives, methodology, results, implications, the whole enchilada. After analyzing the findings and applications, we'll wrap things up with our personal take on the paper's significance. Let's zoom into the paper's objectives. The researchers aim to assess whether a learning task could enhance the recognition and selection of self-enhancing interpretations of events. They also looked at the effects of a brief cognitive restructuring intervention. Methodologically speaking, they conducted two studies involving these interventions. Participants took part in a learning task designed to train them in identifying and selecting interpretations of events that would hopefully boost their mood. Think of it as a gym session for the mind. And they didn't forget about cognitive restructuring. By walking participants through an evaluation of alternative explanations for events in their lives, the researchers hoped to foster improved mood as well. Their measure of success was a specialized task assessing causal attribution tendencies, essentially how prone you are to attributing events to different causes. For example, if you fail a test, do you blame yourself, the difficulty of the test, or perhaps luck? Results time. The researchers found that both learning training and cognitive restructuring positively affected attribution tendencies. This means participants were less likely to make self-blaming attributions for negative events and more likely to attribute positives to their own doing. And you guessed it, this varied based on individual learning rates. 
those who picked up the learning task quicker saw more significant changes in their attribution styles. Now, on to the implications. This research suggests that augmenting cognitive therapy with learning tasks could provide extra oomph in improving mood, especially for those with higher learning rates. And remember, the results here build on the understanding that our learning abilities and our attribution styles are intertwined. So optimizing therapeutic interventions could consider a person's learning capabilities. So what have we learned today? Cognitive therapy components like learning tasks and cognitive restructuring can foster more positive attribution styles. And it turns out how well you learn can play a big role in the benefits you reap from these interventions. We've seen the elegance and the complexity of blending psychological principles with learning theory and the potential to personalize treatments based on individual learning differences. That's a game changer. It sure is. There's a universe within our brains, listeners, with countless nuances we've yet to fully understand. This paper nudges the door open a bit further, offering valuable insights. These kinds of studies remind us that mental health treatment isn't one-size-fits-all. We're individuals with unique minds that react to therapies in our own distinct ways. Next time, we'll continue to journey through fascinating research, deciphering the code that underpins our thoughts, behaviors, and emotions. Until then... This is Tom. And this is Jen. Keep those neurons firing and stay curious, everyone. Has your brain been hitting the gym lately? No? Well, feast your neurons on our latest sponsor, Brain Buffers. Brain Buffers takes the groundbreaking research we discuss and turns it into a revolutionary brain training app that guarantees to beef up your attribution muscles. Ever find yourself blaming the dog for eating your homework when you didn't even do it? Brain Buffer's patented cogweight system will turn that blame game into brain gain. With a user-friendly interface, Brain Buffer's lets you swipe your way through personalized mental workouts. Swipe right for positive attributions, left for those not-so-healthy thoughts. And hold on to your hats, folks. For every 10 swipes to the right, you get a virtual trophy that's as shiny as a new synapse. Not learning fast enough? No worries. Brain Buffers also packs a snail's pace mode that gradually inches you towards cognitive glory. But wait, use the promo code PODCASTBRAINS now and get a 10% discount on your first month of cognitive pumping action. Brain Buffers. Because when your brain's in shape, life's one rep easier. Side effects may include increased wit, overflowing positivity, and a curious tendency to attribute sunshine to your sheer existence. Join the mental fitness revolution with brain buffers and flex those thought processes today. Welcome, welcome listeners. It's another sunny day in the podcast universe, and you're tuned into the deep dive with your co-pilots of pontification. That's me, Jen, and the ever-charming... Tom. Today, folks, we're unpacking a riveting paper that cracks open the mysteries of the glass cliff phenomenon, titled Exploring the Role of Social Identity in the Glass Cliff Phenomenon, a Gender Projection Model. Now, before we sail into the heart of this paper, let's lay down some context. In the lofty world of leadership, it's no secret that men have traditionally hogged the seats of power. But as we witness more women shatter the glass ceiling, weirdly enough, they often seem to land on a glass cliff. Exactly. What is this glass cliff, you ask? 
Well, it's this bizarre trend where women are likelier to be promoted to leadership roles at times when companies are in dire straits, facing greater risks of failure. Our paper today unveils what's dubbed the gender projection model, a nuanced lens to analyze why women end up on these precarious pedestals. The authors aren't just stirring the pot here. They've unleashed three studies comparing the model's predictions with traditional explanations like gender stereotypes and sexism. They aim to debunk the think crisis, think female idea by using something called Euclidean distance. Hold on to your protractors, folks, because this metric measures how closely traits associated with managers align with traits typically ascribed to each gender. To round off the introduction, this paper isn't just a token nod to gender inequality. It's a new beacon in the understanding of discrimination at play in the workplace. Now, let's take the plunge into the core of this research. Let's dissect the objectives. The researcher's North Star is to grasp the mechanisms behind the glass cliff using their fresh-off-the-press gender projection model, GPM for short. For the appetizer, they shout study one, which lobbed 20 traits at participants, asking them to link these traits to men, women, and successful managers under varying company financial health scenarios. A methodological smorgasbord ensued, with participants categorizing traits as masculine or feminine, then the company's financials getting a tweak to appear either like Scrooge McDuck's vault or a tumbleweed convention. Then came the main course, studies two and three, which replicated procedures, but added some hot sauce in the form of sexism and social dominance orientation measurements. The key findings? Here's where it gets juicy. Study one ends up tossing the think crisis, think female theory out the window. Instead, it found that men, especially associated the manager role with male traits in successful companies, less so in failing ones. Studies two and three poured cold water on the idea that our beliefs about genders, no matter how archaic, have any significant bearing on the glass cliff. Surprisingly, neither hostile nor benevolent sexism heightened the effect. Instead, the gender projection model stood its ground against the forces of sexism and social dominance orientation, emerging, perhaps, a bit smug as a more reliable explainer. This brings us to the implications and applications. If the GPM holds water, it swings the spotlight away from blaming stereotypes and onto identity motives, tangled with the desire for social status. Precisely, Jen. It ripples outwards, suggesting organizational shifts, policy overhauls, and training programs need to emphasize this aspect to ferry women away from these cliff edges. As we close in on the conclusion, let's refocus our lenses. The paper aims its canons at the thought that the glass cliff is a manifestation of deep-rooted stereotypes and sexist attitudes. But it actually throws a curveball, proposing that this treacherous cliff is more about internal group dynamics and a yearning to align with the shiniest, highest-status roles. Through meticulous experimentation, it punctures holes in old theories and floats the GPM as a more substantial vessel to carry our understanding forward. What's certain is that this isn't just an academic squabble. It's a lattice of social intricacies that bleeds into the real world, where real women are affected by these prestige-based biases. It's a paper that not only challenges existing explanations, but paddles out to broader social waters, implicating the inner workings of groups and the impact of identity and status-seeking on gender discrimination. And there you have it, listeners. This episode has been a journey through peaks and valleys and cliffs of both glass and gender. Until our next cerebral saga, 
Keep questioning. Keep exploring. And may your career paths be free of precarious perches. Thanks for tuning in, and as always, stay on the brink of discovery. Goodbye for now. Hey there, movers and shakers. Tired of walking the corporate tightrope and finding yourself perched on a glass cliff? Well, fear not, because Cliffomatic is here. Cliffomatic is the first ever emergency parachute for your career. Made from 100% statistical data and gender theory, it's your personal safety net for when your promotion is more danger than upward mobility. But wait, there's more. With every Cliffomatic, you get a complimentary set of glass goggles. These snazzy specs allow you to see the corporate landscape through the lens of gender dynamics, helping you identify every potential cliff in sight. And if you order now, we'll throw in a free bottle of our patented stereotype spray. Just one spritz and watch as antiquated gender roles and biases disappear. Poof. Faster than women in leadership at a tech conference. Laugh. Call 1-800-NO-CLIFF to order your Cliffomatic today and take the leap into leadership with confidence. Don't let the glass cliff scare you. Catch yourself with Cliffomatic. Side effects may include increased job satisfaction, a balanced workplace, and spontaneous promotions. Cliffomatic is not responsible for broken glass ceilings. Use as directed. Cliffomatic, because who said breaking barriers couldn't come with a safety harness? Call now. End with a comical beep sound indicating the end of commercial. Welcome back, listeners. We have a special episode today on a paper near and dear to our hearts. That's right, Tom. We're diving headfirst into demystifying open science in health psychology and behavioral medicine, a practical guide to registered reports and data notes by Emma Norris and colleagues. Published as a preprint, this paper hasn't gone through peer review yet. It's authored by an international collective from the UK, Ireland, and the Netherlands, all hailing from institutions dedicated to health sciences and psychology. So what is open science exactly, Jen? Open science refers to a gamut of practices aiming to make research more transparent, reproducible, and accessible. Hmm. And this paper presents open science in the specific fields of health psychology and behavioral medicine. Exactly, Tom. These fields aim to develop effective interventions for public and patient benefit, a noble cause that significantly benefits from open science practices. The paper serves multiple purposes. First, it covers the current state of open research policies within these fields. Then, it delivers a call for submissions for registered reports and data notes as new paper formats in the journal Health Psychology and Behavioral Medicine. It also provides an uncomplicated explanation of what registered reports and data notes are, along with practical considerations for authors and reviewers. Let's not forget the keywords of the paper, open science, registered reports, data notes, to name a few. These play a big role in the drive towards transparency and credibility in research. Open science involves practices across the entire research life cycle, right from design through to publishing. Pre-registration, adherence to reporting checklists, public sharing of data, materials, code, etc. fall under this umbrella. And open science greatly reduces the likelihood of questionable practices like p-hacking or harking, hypothesizing after results are known. A big no-no for rigorous scientific work. It strengthens efforts to curb publication bias, which can inflate effect sizes and skew meta-analyses, 
where studies with non-significant findings are often overlooked. Further into the paper, they provide a snapshot of how open science is progressing in health psychology and behavioral medicine. They highlight strategic actions like supporting open data, integrating open science in teaching, and expanding journal policies. Despite these efforts, there's a lamentable lag in actual open science behaviors like pre-registration and data sharing. Journals play a big part here. Their editorial policies can prompt better open science practices. And while some health psychology journals are getting on board, many still aren't, especially when it comes to enacting the transparency and openness promotion guidelines. Now, let's dissect the call for submissions. The journal Health Psychology and Behavioral Medicine is embracing registered reports and data notes as new formats. And this is great because they're promoting the transparent reporting of research methods and data regardless of the outcome. Speaking of registered reports, they are essentially peer-reviewed study proposals accepted before data collection starts to ensure decisions are based on the question and methods, not the outcomes. Right? They circumvent publication bias and encourage transparency at the design stage. Though, the uptake of registered reports in health-related journals remains limited. On the flip side, data notes focus on thoroughly documenting data sets, to make them more accessible and citable for future research. Both registered reports and data notes face challenges, like the time needed for peer review and the fear of being scooped. The paper rounds off with future directions for open science in health psychology and behavioral medicine. Yep, calling for broader adoption of open science policies, more meta-research, and instilling open science in academic culture and training. Now that we've provided an extensive account of this paper, Let's reflect on it personally, Tom. This is powerful stuff, Jen. The transition to open science can revolutionize research, making it more credible and beneficial for society at large. Absolutely, Tom. And it feels like we're on the cusp of a significant shift in academic culture. This paper lights the path for researchers to align their methodologies with the values of openness and transparency. Couldn't have said it better myself. This was quite the deep dive, but we've emerged with a better understanding of the crucial role open science plays. And it's essential to keep the conversation going to ensure that these practices become a staple in health psychology and beyond. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. As always, thanks for tuning in, and be sure to join us next time when we unravel more of the intricacies of cutting-edge research. Stay curious, keep questioning, and above all, keep listening. Until next time, goodbye from all of us here. Are you tired of your research papers gathering dust on the island of forgotten studies? Want to jazz up your health psychology data with the sparkle of transparency? Introducing Open Science Unleashed. The only service transforming your snoozeworthy submissions into registered reports rock stars and your overlooked data sets into data notes darlings. With Open Science Unleashed, we're turning the tables on traditional publications. Our crack team of open access aficionados will pre-register your hypotheses faster than you can say hypothesizing after results are known. And don't worry about data sharing. We send your figures on a data sharing disco. That's right, Tom. We make them so open and transparent, they're practically doing the conga line in everyone's research party. Our services include our signature transparency tune-up, pre-registration pampering, and data debutantes ball.
with Open Science Unleashed, say goodbye to anxieties over publication bias. And hello to a world where every study is a star, regardless of its statistical sexiness. So don't let your research be as invisible as calories on cheat day. Make it shine with Open Science Unleashed, your one-stop shop for all things open science. Open Science Unleashed, because your research deserves to be out in the open, not in hiding. Call us now. Welcome to our deep dive into an intriguing research paper titled Standing Enhances Esports Performance and Executive Function for Short Durations But Not for Long, Implications for Positive Sitting, authored by Takashi Matsui and colleagues. I'm your host, Tom. And I'm Jen, here to unravel the complexities of this study with Tom. This paper investigates how our physical posture, specifically standing versus sitting, can affect performance in esports and related cognitive tasks. That's right, Tom. The context here is critical. With the rise of esports and our increasingly digital lifestyles, prolonged sitting has become the norm. But this habit is linked to various health issues, ranging from cardiovascular disease to impacts on mental health. In response, the scientific community has been exploring moderate standing as a means to counteract the effects of prolonged sitting. Previous studies suggest that moderate standing can improve not just health, but cognitive performance too. However, the question remains, how does posture actually impact esports play, a task that combines cognitive engagement with minimal physical exertion? And this paper seeks answers by exploring the effects of moderate standing on mood, executive function, like your decision-making skills, and esports performance in a virtual football game context. Let's start by looking at the key variables studied. Mood and executive function are assessed using subjective questionnaires and specific cognitive tasks like the flanker task, which tests your ability to focus on relevant stimuli while ignoring distractions. Then comes esports performance, gauged through in-game metrics such as shots taken and goals scored. Physiological responses are also monitored, which brings us to heart rate and pupil size, indirect measures of cognitive load and mental engagement. Right, they also measure salivary cortisol and testosterone as markers for stress and self-confidence, which can influence cognitive function. Now, for the nitty-gritty methodology. Participants played a virtual football game in alternating standing and sitting positions for up to three hours. The researchers measured the aforementioned variables at set intervals during the game. Interestingly, the study was split into two experiments, the first focusing on comparing standing versus sitting, while the second delved into the nuances of seating posture, comparing leaning forward to reclining backward. And what they found was pretty fascinating. Standing enhanced mood, executive function, and certain aspects of esports performance initially particularly in the first 30 to 60 minutes. Exactly. But as the duration went over an hour, the benefits waned. Prolonged standing resulted in cognitive fatigue and a decrease in performance. In fact, half the participants who were standing had to quit due to fatigue. In terms of physiology, standing players showed increased heart rate, higher pupil diameter, along with increased cortisol and testosterone levels at the beginning, indicating a higher physiological load compared to sitting players. This highlights that while the standing posture demands more from the body and mind, leading to short-term benefits in game performance, it also has its limits when sustained for long periods. Moving on to experiment two, 
where the research unraveled the impact of different seating postures, the leaning forward seat position seemed to mimic the cognitive dynamics of standing, improving performance in early play. But there's a twist. Unlike standing, leaning forward didn't amplify physiological stress markers, implying that its benefits might arise from psychological effects through heightened brain activity. And when it came to reclining while seated, it was all about endurance. Sure, it meant slower initial responses, but it maintained cognitive accuracy and helped stave off cognitive fatigue seen in prolonged leaning forward. In summary, their findings suggest that alternating postural modifications may be necessary to match cognitive performance demands with health benefits. So reflecting on this, Jen, it's pretty clear that the modern challenge isn't just about whether to sit or stand, but how we can adapt in dynamic ways to meet our physiological and cognitive needs. Absolutely, Tom, and this could have far-reaching implications, not just for esports athletes, but for anyone engaged in cognitive tasks in the digital era. We really need to rethink our approach to positive sitting. To our listeners, we hope this episode has provided you with an in-depth understanding of the study's objectives, methodology, key findings, and implications. It's a testament to how small changes in our daily habits can potentially bring about significant improvements in both health and performance. Stick around for more episodes as we continue to explore cutting-edge research and untangle the science behind the headlines. Goodbye for now. Are you a gamer looking to level up your in-game skills without crashing and burning? Does your backside feel like it's flatlining after hours of sitting on your gaming throne? Introducing Posture Play, the chair that stands up for your health and your high score. Posture Play's patented sit-stand-switch technology lets you alternate effortlessly between sitting and standing with just the flick of a switch. Comes with an integrated timer that nags you, or I mean gently reminds you, to switch positions right at that peak performance window. But wait, there's more. In recline mode, the chair extends into a full layback and look pro position, maintaining your cognitive edge for those marathon sessions. Can't focus? The built-in flanker task armrests will keep your brain sharp with distracting lights you have to ignore. Good practice for ignoring trolls. Order now and we'll throw in a set of exclusive mood-lifting seat covers, scientifically proven to boost your mood for exactly 30 minutes. Posture play, because your butt deserves better, and so does your brain. Get yours today. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned in to our award-winning podcast, where today Jen and I are diving deep into a fascinating research paper that discusses how GPS navigation assistance can improve driving mobility for older adults. But before we dig into the nitty-gritty, let's start with a brief introduction. That's right, Tom. The paper, titled GPS Navigation Assist Assistance Improves Driving Mobility in Older Drivers, comes from a team of researchers including Saul Morrissey, Stephen Jeffs, Rachel Gillings, Mizanur Kondoker, Anuraj Varshney, Mary Fisher Morris, Ed Manley, and the corresponding author Michael Hornberger spread across multiple prestigious institutions in the United Kingdom. To give you all some contextual background, this paper is significant because maintaining driving independence is a vital component of well-being in old age. Aging often comes with neurological changes that unfortunately can lead to a decline in cognitive function affecting an older adult's ability to navigate while driving. 
and that's where the papers focus on electronic navigation assistance, like satellite navigation or satnav, becomes super interesting, Tom. These technologies could potentially help to ease the cognitive demands of driving, thereby enhancing driving mobility and safety for older adults. Right, Jen. And before we delve further into the core, let's clarify some key concepts. First, when we talk about cognitive decline, we mean the deterioration of memory and the ability to process information that often occurs naturally with age. Cognitive demands in this context are the mental tasks and attention required while navigating and driving. Another term you'll hear in this episode is self-regulation. This refers to older drivers' tendencies to limit their driving activities as they experience challenges due to age, like avoiding nighttime driving or long distances. Okay, on to the core of the discussion. The study involves 902 older drivers with an average age of 71. These participants self-reported their navigation assistance usage and driving mobility, which includes how frequently they drive and the range of their trips. The methodology here involved having the participants complete cognitive assessments and a subjective sense of direction questionnaire. Through this, the researchers aimed to establish relationships between the use of satnav and cognitive performance associated with wayfinding, that is, the ability to plan and follow a route. Their key findings are pretty compelling. Most of the older drivers use some form of navigation assistance, mostly for entire journeys to new locations. Interestingly, while the use of satnav was linked to worse subjective orientation ability, it didn't correlate negatively with objective cognitive performance. This is huge, Tom, because it suggests that even if someone feels uncertain about their direction skills, it doesn't necessarily mean they're objectively worse at navigating. But crucially, the usage of navigation aids was positively associated with increased driving mobility. And Jen, for those with poor wayfinding abilities, the use of navigation assistance was tied to even greater driving mobility, which could indicate that these devices help older adults compensate for their decreased cognitive functions related to navigation. On to the implications and applications. This study's impact is immense, as it suggests integrating navigation assistance into strategies for promoting driving independence could markedly benefit older adults, particularly those less confident in their wayfinding abilities. Looking ahead, we could see future car designs and driving programs focusing more on incorporating these technologies, customized for older drivers' needs. As we wrap this up, Tom, it's clear that the main points from this study show a bright side to technology's role in our lives, especially for senior citizens. GPS navigation doesn't just get us from point A to point B, it could be a tool for maintaining autonomy and confidence on the road. And personally, Jen, I find it quite heartening. It's technology working to enhance the quality of life for a demographic that often grapples with losing independence. This paper serves as a great reminder of how human ingenuity can work hand-in-hand -hand with compassion. Absolutely, Tom. And that's all we have for today's episode. We hope our discussion has given you valuable insights into this poignant topic. Keep your eyes peeled for new technologies on the horizon that aim to support our seniors in keeping their independence and zest for life intact. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Tom signing off. And this is Jen saying, until next time, drive safely and stay curious. Are you tired of your old-fashioned map giving you the origami blues? 
Sick of asking for directions at the gas station only to end up at a dead-end road named Nowhere? Well, buckle up, friends. Introducing Smart Routes, the GPS co-pilot for the seasoned soul. Born from cutting-edge research, Smart Routes isn't just a GPS. It's your trustworthy road companion that's seen more birthdays than a centennial oak tree. With extra-large buttons that are easier to poke than a marshmallow, Smart Routes is perfect for those who appreciate a more hem, mature font size. And are you worried about those pesky little side streets and dead ends? Fear not. Smart Routes Eagle Eye technology will spot a cul-de-sac from a mile away, steering you clear of navigational faux pas. Gone are the days of squinting. Our screens are brighter than your grandkids' future, showcasing a contrast that pops more than your knee on a cold morning. Smart Routes talks to you with a gentle voice that's clearer than a bell, with thoughtful reminders like, your turn is coming up, no rush. And remember, the left lane is for those young whippersnappers. So forget the stigma associated with asking for directions. Smart Routes is like having an old friend in the passenger seat. If that friend had a degree in cartography and an endless supply of Werther's originals. Call now and we'll throw in a custom Golden Oldies playlist because nothing beats missing a freeway exit listening to Sweet Caroline. Smart Routes, helping you navigate life's highways one turn at a time. Because when it comes to driving, experience counts. And we've certainly got a lot of that. Don't wander. Order Smart Routes today. And remember, it's not about the destination. It's about how you get... Wait, where were we going again? Never mind that, Jen. With Smart Routes, we'll always find our way. Or at least, enjoy the ride trying. 